Thank you, Sister Julie. Beautiful song. Beautiful song. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Um, we last time looked at verse 6 through 10. And this time we'll work, look at verse 11 through 16. Uh, this is a, I guess, a two part message, being that this is really one main passage, 6 through 16. We got through half of it last time. And hopefully we'll finish the second part this time. Uh, I'm going to read for us starting in verse 6 all the way down to 16 out of 1 Timothy chapter 4. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now verse 11. Let, or sorry, verse 11. Command and teach these things. Verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of the elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourselves to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be in your house. It's really good to be with your people. Uh, Lord, it's good to be with the church of God. And Lord, we, we thank you that you've brought us here. Lord, help all of us to settle in on the fact that none of us is here by accident. That Lord, you have us in this place at this moment before your word for a reason. And so God, we come as your people trusting your word. And Lord, we ask that this morning that Your Word would go forth. And God, I pray that as a minister of Your Word, that You would use it in the lives of Your people. Lord, You talk here in this passage about the awesome responsibilities of a pastor. And Lord, these also are shared responsibilities of all who are ministers of Christ, shared uh, understandings of what it means to be a Christian. And so, Father, I pray that You would use this in our lives and in the life of Your church, Lord, to further found us, further ground us in who You are and in the Word of God. We ask all these things to You, our Father. We ask them through the incredible name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And now we ask that You, Lord, would would use this uh, and, and apply it by Your Spirit. Amen. Well, again, uh, last time we looked at verse 6 through 10 together. Remember we talked about, uh, Paul says there, if you're going to be a good servant of Christ... And he's talking to Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy, who's serving in the book and the book in the uh, town of Ephesus. 
And he's saying, if you're to be a good servant of Christ, then here you go. This is what it means to be a good servant of Christ. He went so far as last time to say, these are marks, if you will, of what it means to be a successful minister of God. Uh, We looked at four different ones last time. We looked at nurture yourself on the Word. We looked at train for godliness. We looked at avoiding unbiblical myths. And we looked at working hard to know, uh, working hard knowing that God will use it to bring salvation to the nations. And so now, as we consider verse 11 through 16, we're going to add to those four, or better, Paul's going to add to those four, and he's going to actually give us seven more this week. Don't worry, it won't be twice as long as last time. Even though I have to tell you, this morning I saw Joel with his iPad and he had a cord connected to it, and I said, why do you have a cord connected to it? He said, I looked and saw it only had 10% left. I said, oh, and I guess that's a problem. He said, well, I saw that you were preaching. I realized I'm definitely going to need more charge to get through the sermon. So um, maybe something I should take from that. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, uh, verse 11, uh, we will begin with the first one, command and teach these things. So he tells, Paul tells Timothy, you need to command and you need to teach these things. Paul uses the phrase these things all the way throughout the book of 1 Timothy. You'll see it all across the book. And I think what he's typically saying is not just the last thing I said, but more a conglomeration of all the things I've said. These things I'm writing you. And so when he comes to tell them now, he says, you need to command and teach these things. Not simply suggest them, Timothy, but you need to command and teach those things or these things. You know, this is tough for modern ears. It's tough for modern ears that don't like the idea of anybody commanding us to do anything uh, and really balk at the idea of a pastor commanding us to do something from a pulpit. And yet Paul clearly instructs Timothy to command and teach these things, the things of Scripture. So let's be clear that the Scriptures command pastors to be commanding parishioners. The Scriptures command pastors you should be commanding parishioners. Nowhere in Scripture does it call, not anywhere, do you see where it tells a pastor to go entertain or go be humorous. You won't find it anywhere. And yet we see right here in Scripture that it does say that you are to command and teach. So let us make a note as a congregation. If what ever happens on a regular basis behind this pulpit would be summed up as comedy or entertainment, It doesn't accord with the Word of God, but what should be summed up as happening on a regular basis behind this pulpit is commanding and teaching the Word of God. I really find this helpful that he combines commanding and teaching. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 2, he's going to go on to say, teach and urge these things. Pastors are to command and pastors are to urge but they are to do so while teaching the Scriptures. So I believe that my job as a pastor, as a preacher, would be well summed up in saying, command and urge obedience to the Scriptures while teaching the Scriptures. And as such, I believe a major part of the job of a preacher is submitting a case to you, the congregation, working to convince you about what the Scriptures say. It is, in some sense, 
a weekly argument. And then commanding and urging us to follow in obedience and faith. So subtract the Scriptures from my sermon and you will subtract my authority to urge and command. Let me say it again. You subtract the Scriptures from any sermon from a Christian pulpit and you subtract the authority of the pulpit. If you hear a command and do not learn from where that command is derived in Scripture, then you have no reason to obey that command. Conversely, if you learn something from the Scriptures, you have no choice but to obey the accompanying command. It seems to be what Paul is after. And so as listeners of the Word, we come willing in waiting and wanting to be convinced week by week. That's how we should show up to the service every week. We want to be convinced. We're waiting to be convinced of what the Scriptures say because we want to obey what they say. First thing Paul says to Timothy is, you go command and teach. And then verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Very helpful verse. Paul tells Timothy to let no one despise him for his youth. This has become uh, uh, a token verse, if you will, for many youth ministries over the years. Probably one of the reasons for that is if you go look up the word youth in a concordance, and you look for the hits in the New Testament, you're not going to find many. And this would be the only thing uh, that would be close to maybe a theme verse if you're looking at the word youth. Well, in one sense, to be quite honest with you, that might not be the very best use of this word youth. <laughs> Here's why. We know that Timothy is at the youngest in his late 30s and more probably, probably closer to the mid-40s uh, when he is preaching this. So he's at least, at least in his mid-30s. So when we hear the word youth there, unless we want to redefine uh, what we understand by youth ministry, and as I get older by the day, um, I, I think I'd be all up for that. Um, otherwise, uh, this might not be the best use of that word youth. That said, let's not toss it all together in terms of application for young people because I think it has a tremendous application. So stay with me. But be warned, it's real easy to misunderstand what Paul's saying here. So he says, let no one despise your youth. We live in a culture that exalts youth more than any other culture in the history of mankind. For most of mankind, youth was not something to be exalted. In fact, it was something looked down on. People did not work hard to look young, but were happy to look old and mature. In fact, you, if, you, if you remember some of the Elizabethan times, you've got a good-looking person was obese and old-looking. And that, at times, was celebrated. I kind of want to go back to those days. But anyway, um, that's not uh, our culture for sure. No, in our culture, in our culture, we exalt youth. 
I think it's easy for us to read this verse in that lens and not realize we're doing it. It may be tempting for us to hear Timothy saying, or Paul saying something like this, Timothy, you don't let those older people despise your youth, but you instead stand up to them. Well, hear me. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying anything like that. Instead, Paul seems to acknowledge that Timothy's age is an issue. In fact, it might be a problematic issue. I think we should read Paul as saying something like this to Timothy. Timothy, you are young and that might be problematic. As such, it is necessary for you to set an example in how you live. You're young. That could be an issue. Therefore, it's really necessary for you to set an example. And then he goes on and he explains what might this example be. We'll hear this. He says, go set an example in your speech. His speech is not to be considered filthy or unwholesome. He should hold his tongue. He should use his tongue wisely. In our Bible reading plan, if you've been following along, we've been walking through the book of Proverbs. And one of my favorite Proverbs on the use of the tongue is Proverbs 15.4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness takes away or breaks the spirit. The tongue can give life. And yet our speech, we all know, can just as quickly what? Take it away. So he says, Timothy, you need to be an example in your speech, but not just your speech. You need to be an example, he goes on, in your conduct. You should conduct your life with control and with discipline. And then he goes on and he says, in not just your speech and your conduct, but in your love. Jesus tells us, greater love has no man than this. Then what? Then he lays down his life for his friend. That's actually a pretty helpful explanation of Christian ministry. It's laying down your life slowly for those you love. And so Christian ministers, they don't feed on the congregation. They, they don't use the congregation to support lavish lifestyles or super egos. No. They consistently lay their lives down for the flock. Timothy, be an example. Be an example in your speech. Be an example in your conduct. Be an example in your love. And then he goes on, he says, be an example in your faith. He could mean here something like, be an example in your faithfulness. That is your loyalty, your, your commitment. But he also could be talking about an example in belief. That is, the things that you believe about God and how you trust in God. Either one would be a great use here as a Christian minister should be faithful and a Christian minister should be full of those things he believes about God. In fact, his loyalty and his work to the ministry should flow out of those things that he believes. Be an example in your speech, be an example in your conduct, be an example in your love, be an example in your faith, and be an example, he says, in your purity. We talked last week in Psalm 27 about willing one thing. That's what purity means. You go get sugar at the store and it says that it's pure sugar. Well, what claim is it making? That it's completely uh, unstained from immorality? No. It's saying it's sugar and it's what? Only sugar. 
Well, that's what he's saying here about Timothy being an example in purity, in particular in sexual purity, and in a culture where sexual immorality is openly celebrated. It's a good thing to be reminded of. And Paul asked Timothy, set an example in sexual purity. Guard your heart and your mind, be an example to the flock. And so we have. Timothy, do not let anyone despise your youth, but you go set an example in your speech and your conduct and your love and your faith and in your purity. If you put it all back together, I think it would sound something like this. Timothy, don't give them just cause to despise your youthfulness, but instead live a life of an example that would put anyone's concerns to rest. And as we return to our original point, is this applicable to youth, to young people? I think there's a strong application here for young people. Whether you realize it or not, and it's hard when you're young to realize this, you're in a unique, truth be told, a -a once-in-a-lifetime position, especially as a young person in our culture where we exalt youth. You're in a unique position to influence those around you. You'll never have that opportunity again to have your youth be used to influence those around you. How so? Well, certainly you can influence those that are younger than you because they're looking up to you. And there's a good chance what you do, they will follow. But let me also say, in a culture, a Christian culture that sets incredibly low low expectations on young people, let me say that you have a real opportunity, young person, young persons, to actually influence those who are older than you. Because the truth be told, sad to say, the Christian church is not used to expecting much from folks who are young. And inasmuch as we live as an example in these areas of speech and conduct and love and faith and impurity, then I submit you actually have probably just as much, if not a greater opportunity to influence those who are older than you. Don't let them despise your youth, Timothy. No. Set an example through your youth. Don't let it be used against you, Timothy. You could sum them up to say. But instead, by God's grace and through His Spirit, use it for the advancement of the kingdom. Verse 13. Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Paul gives Timothy a priority for the ministry. He says you should read the Scriptures, urge the Scriptures, and teach the Scriptures. At the heart of what you do should be the Scriptures. A church that puts the Scriptures at the center is a church with an attitude of submission. They get themselves underneath the Word of God and they trust it and they depend on it and they hold on to it. They don't trust the latest fad. They don't take a poll of the congregation to decide who prefers what. They don't even trust their own wisdom or their own scholarship, but they gather around the Word and they ask the important question over and over, what do the Scriptures say? 
I really appreciate the amount of time that is taken in the leadership that goes into planning our services. One of the driving thoughts behind uh, the planning of the services is to imagine someone, after participating in one of the services, being asked this question. What would have happened to that service you just experienced? What would have happened to the substance and the flow of that service if we were to subtract Scripture from it? It's our goal, it's our aim, that the person would respond with, well, it would have lost all substance and it would have actually not even flowed well at all. There wouldn't be much left to it. Folks, that would be an incredible, incredible compliment. Somebody walks out of here and goes, I mean, if you toss the Scriptures, they really had nothing. And the answer back is, yep, <laughs> that's right. You toss this. And we are in a confused mess. We don't know what to do. We, we don't know what to do. We don't even know how to worship. And so... Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, the urging and the teaching of it. He, he says that it should be the appetizer. It should be the main course. It should be the dessert. As you gather together, it should be Scriptures. And while we're at it, let me encourage you. If you don't have a practice of this now, that's alright. You can begin it. Go to the website on Saturdays and download the worship guide. It's out there. You can download the worship guide. And it's our hope that families will gather around it on Saturday nights for family devotion around the worship guide so that we know what's coming. I appreciate the Puritans, at least somewhat in part, on this point. They had an amazing dedication to the Lord's Day. In fact, for a Puritan... Now remember, we're not talking about people who live in a far away land. We're talking about people who live here in America, in, in New England. For a Puritan, Saturday began at three or uh, Saturday. The Lord's Day began on Saturday at three p.m. At that point, all work ceased. Everybody made it their way home, and fathers led in a family devotion. In fact, it, it was such a big deal. Saturday preparation for Sunday was such a big deal that the Puritans were often made fun of by the rest of people who weren't Puritans in the community. In fact, they said God commanded that we have one day of uh, rest, but the Puritans have decided to improve for God and added a day and a half, or given us a day and a half. In fact, I found this. This is, this is a... Uh, a poem that was printed, it's a stab at the Puritans in a uh, Connecticut newspaper um, in the uh, late 1700s. And let it be enacted further still that our people strict observed will five days and a half shall men and women too attend their business and their fun pursue. But after that, no man without a fine shall walk the streets or at a tavern dine. One day and a half, tis made to rest for to- from toilsome labor and a tempting feast. Henceforth, let no one on peril of their lives attempt a journey or embrace their wives. Obviously, is a joke. 
But it must be a point there that the Puritans took so serious the Sabbath that the people around them couldn't believe it. In fact, there's a guy by the name of Cotton Mather. He's unfortunately influenced, known for his, he's a Puritan, a pretty different preacher. He's known for his uh, involvement with the Salem witch trials. But it was said that Cotton Mather would gather his, his family and he would preach the long version of his sermon to them on Saturday nights. Now, his typical sermon was two to three hours long. That's what the folks got on Sunday. Power up your iPad for that one. So, uh, the, the one on Saturday night was the long version. That was the one on Sunday got the bridge. But here, gather, get this. If they come home, so you've heard it Saturday night, long version. You get the abridged version Sunday at church. This is true. On Saturday night, Cotton Mather would gather his family back around and he would preach the exact same sermon again. He'd repeat it yet a third time to them. Now, I think this is a little bit overkill and my, fam- my family is sincerely grateful. Um, but I do challenge you, husbands and fathers, let's take the lead on this. Let's gather our families on Saturday nights. It doesn't have to be a long gathering, but let's use the worship guide. You don't have to sing every song if you don't want, but at least read the sermon text together. Read some of the responsive readings together. So that when we show up on Sunday morning, we've already marinated in the Scriptures so that they become the centerpiece of what we do. Alright, back to the text. Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scriptures. But that's not all. He goes further and says, not only should you read them, but you should teach them and explain them. There's an obligation on every preacher to work hard to understand what the Scriptures are saying and then work hard to explain it. And he goes on and he tells Timothy to give an exhortation. That is an urging to it. We spoke in verse 11, very similar thing. The preacher is to explain and the preacher is to urge. I think this is one of the main differences between preaching and teaching. I've had the opportunity in various settings to teach in classroom settings. I don't feel a huge need to urge people in a classroom setting because they have other motivations such as paying tuition to be there or taking a test that they're going to get graded on if they're going to get credit for the course. But as a preacher... According to the Scriptures, I'm not just supposed to tell you what it says. I'm supposed to urge you, compel you, motivate you and myself to obey the Scriptures. And so he says, Timothy, devote yourself to the reading, to the teaching, the urging of Scriptures. Would you pray that God would make the Scriptures central to everything we do as a congregation? That God would make the Scriptures central. Verse 14. He's hammering through these. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Don't neglect the gift you have. We know that Timothy's ministry was exceedingly difficult. The church he was serving in in Ephesus was floundering. They had false prophets... They had people usurping his authority left and right. People didn't even want him to get up and talk. There was a disorder among who was doing what. Not to mention the pressures on the outside from the the uh, pagan uh, area, uh, the pagan influence in the Ephesus culture. And not to mention the internal struggles of doubt and discouragement, of timidity, battles with flesh, 
Pride, all of which Paul actually urges Timothy against in 1 Timothy. He doesn't say that just by happenstance. He knows he's struggling. He's a man struggling in the ministry. And Paul encourages Timothy to say, don't forget that God has purposed you to do this. God has gifted you by His Spirit. This was affirmed by the prophecy and publicly affirmed when we laid hands on you. I believe that when he says prophetic word or by prophecy, I believe Paul means something like a clear word from God, maybe given to Paul. This was very normal in the apostolic age. I don't think that prophetic words like that from God to us are normative today. Don't hear me wrong. God still, by His Holy Spirit, gifts men to teach and to lead His people Today, yet, that will not likely be affirmed today by a prophetic word from God. Instead, God normally uses His providence, His provident work, what He's doing in our lives, in the community around us, to affirm our callings. So, let me ask you, how do you know what area God has called you to use your gifts? Every one of us has a gift. Let me say it again. <laughs> the Scriptures say, says every one of us has a gift given by God. How do you know where it is you should use that? Well, I think you consider a couple things. You consider where you are. Where are you living at the time? What means has God used at that time to provide for your family and your physical needs, your financial needs? What demands do you have on you in terms of family and other obligations? What churches are in your area? The combination of those things makes up what we call God's providence in your life. None of those are an accident. He's placed you in in that set of circumstances by His ordination. And so how do you know that God has ordained those things? Because those things are. We believe in a meticulous providence. Not one detail of your life is not there because God put it there. Every detail is there because God put it there. Now, given all that, consider what area is there a need and go serve. Say it again. Take all that, find where there's a need, and go serve. And I'll tell you, as you do that, you will find what gifts God has given to you. Now remember, this is one of the most misunderstood things about spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is given by God, yes, but the benefactor is not primarily the one holding the gift. The benefactor is primarily, according to the Scriptures, the church. Say again. Spiritual gifts are given to every believer, but the benefactor of that gift is not the individual who has the gift. The one who's supposed to primarily benefit from the gift is the church. I'm afraid that in our tendency to over-spiritualize, we often under-spiritualize. For example, if you ask me, what age group, Tim, do you feel most called to? <laughs> You're probably going to get a question back. I'm probably going to ask you back, you tell me which age group in my church needs the most help. 
I honestly can tell you before God, I don't feel any more called to the babies than I do to youth, than I do to young adults, than I do to senior adults. I feel called where there is a need and God has placed me in vicinity, then I believe God has called me to serve where there is a need. And then I believe He'll gift. And I believe He'll take care of it. Let me give you an example. Very um, particular one. I believe that last Sunday, God ordained and gifted Lisa Short to serve in our sound booth. Now, I, I'm going to imagine that that's probably not where Lisa feels the most comfortable. Um, that might not be the top place that she would normally want to serve. But last week, we had a need. She was available. And God supplied the needs of the church by her stepping in and serving in the sound booth. It's a great example of God calling, providing, and using. Let us not wait to find out a place where our comforts feel satisfied. But let us run outside of our comfort zone and let us serve and realize in so doing we are laying down our lives. And in so doing, God is taking care of His church. So back to the text. Paul is saying all of that, I think, to Timothy. You are where you are because God has called you there. You are where you are because God has called you there. Further, Timothy, don't neglect the gift He's given you. Don't think that He hasn't sovereignly ordained you to be there and sovereignly given you the gifts you need to serve His people. Verse 15 Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you all may see your progress. So that all may see your progress. Three helpful verbs. Practice, immerse, and progress. Practice, immerse, and progress. Now, I really think, and I thought about this one quite a bit, should this be divided up and should we look at each one of these individually? But the more I thought about practice and immerse and progress and the way it fits in the, in the passage and what Paul's after there, I don't think they should be divided up. I think it's one main thought that, that he's after in this verse. I, I think he's saying something on the lines of let these things become your disposition. Love the word disposition. It means a habitual inclination. That is, you are inclined that way by habit. It's your tendency. When I think of practice and immerse and progress, if I think about that, I think of military-style training. The U.S. military is great at many things. One of the greatest things that it is, or one of the things it's greatest at is training. I remember my freshman year of college getting letters from Joe Bird as he was enduring Paris Island. And I remember feeling quite lazy, number one. And number two, I was never more encouraged to study hard all my life. The basic philosophy of basic training, so I gather, is train to the point that you react without thinking. And that when you react, you react rightly. Train to the point that you react without even thinking. And then when you do react, you react rightly. I think that's what Paul's after here. I think he's saying to Timothy, do these things over and over and over so much that they become second nature. Recall reading an article about a girl, or a young woman in her, I think she was 20, she served in Desert Storm as a soldier. 
And she was asked, how in the world did you stand and fight instead of just running? And I, she responded with this, I, I did not think about it. This is what she said, I did not think about it. My training kicked in. And I just reacted by doing exactly what I did in training over and over and over and over. And that's what I think Paul is telling Timothy. Timothy, you gotta practice these things, you gotta immerse yourself in these things, and then you gotta progress in them, and then you gotta do it again, and you gotta do it again, and you gotta do it again. You should practice them, you should immerse in them, and you should, and I think it's very interesting, remember he's talking to pastors here, you should progress in them. Those who are perfect don't progress. The church has an ultimate chief shepherd. His name is Jesus Christ. He never progresses because He's already perfect. The church has under-shepherds who are imperfect. They should be always progressing. Just like all of us should always be progressing in maturity towards Jesus. Verse 16 Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Paul sort of sums up this section with these words. If you look at these words, this is really what he's been saying the entire time. Watch yourself. Watch your life. And watch your teaching. Folks, would you pray that God would be merciful and gracious to your pastors and to your leaders and to our other church members that we as a body would watch our lives and keep a close watch on our lives and on our doctrine. Would you pray that God would keep us from error and sin? And then continues, persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. Persist in this. By doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. In the same article when I read about the young woman fighting a desert storm, some other soldiers were asked what motivated them to fight as hard as they did from one village to the next. And one of the soldiers said this, I wish I could tell you it was for love of country, or my mom, or even apple pie. But the truth is, I just wanted to get home alive. And I desperately wanted those to the right and the left of me to get home safe as well. When the bullets started flying, that was all I could think about. Folks, that's pretty much how Paul ends this chapter. Timothy, live this way. Do these things so that you and those that you serve will get home safe. You may ask, well, why do you have all this war comparison going on? I mean, where's really the danger here? Friend, you may not know this, but we're all in grave danger. Inasmuch as we are normal human beings, we are in grave danger. Every person born under Adam has inherited a curse. It's a deadly disease called sin. And it gets worse. There's no man-made remedy. Religion doesn't even begin to inoculate us from the dangers of this disease. Every human has sinned and offended God such that He promises 
His just wrath against every sinner. Unless something drastic happens, then every person is destined to wrath in a horrible place called hell. Now, I'll swallow the danger of that. That's a lot more dangerous than any war scene you can imagine. And yet, there is hope. There's some wonderful news in the name Jesus Christ. He's God's Son and He was sent in human flesh. He lived a perfect life and He experienced the fullness of God's wrath as He died on a cross, not for His own crimes, but to pay for the sins of anyone who would place their faith in Him. He and He alone can save you from the great danger you are in. And you ask, well now wait, if He and He alone can save me, then why is Paul telling Timothy to persist so that He will save Himself and those He serves? (laughs) It's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. God has ordained to bring about the fullness of His saving work through the cross, I mean, through the church. He is, has ordained to bring about the fullness of His saving work through the church. On the cross, Jesus bought the full fare to get you home. Let me say that again. On the cross, Jesus bought the full fare to get you home. Now look around you. Look to your right. Look to your left. This is the vessel He will use to carry you home. Now don't you dare look at the pews and the windows. Those are man-made trinkets and they pale in comparison to the beauty of what God is doing in the hearts of His children as He changes them from dead, stone, cold sinners into lifeless children of God. That's the church. And that's why church membership is so beautiful and precious. It's the formal commitment of us interlocking arms together in saying to each other, our Lord Jesus paid the full fare. It's paid. Now let's stand together. Let us fight like mad together. And by His grace and for His glory, we will get each other home. Let's pray.